Welcome back to the program. Don't forget, coming up in hour two, you'll hear from Kelly McCrimmon, the general manager of the Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights. What do you do for an encore, Kelly? You play at the Sphere. How good does that thing look? Oh, do your events there, NHL, if you can. Get as much hockey there as possible, NHL. Um, also, you'll hear from Jack Hughes of the New Jersey Devils. Elliot and I talked to him as part of the NHL Media Players Tour in Vegas. Uh, about 10 or 15 minutes of Jack Hughes, who is a go-to uh, for media in New Jersey and should probably, by this point, uh, be a go-to for, for national uh, as well. He's uh, exceptional. Um, great player, and that's a really good-looking team. Uh, Stanley Cup good? Mm, we'll see about the New Jersey Devils, but they are indeed, as we mentioned in the first segment, the new hotness around the NHL, certainly in the Eastern Conference, certainly in the Metropolitan Division. Uh, the new hotness out west is a new rink. Uh, here for comments and how we got here is Eric Francis from Sportsnet. Eric, how are you today, bud? I'm Axel, my man. How are you? Good. Is it just me or does it seem we've been talking about this for like, what, 15 years now? Like, oh, Calgary and a new rank, Calgary and a new rank, Calgary and a new rank. Uh, there have been a couple of false starts along the way, some hurdles, some hiccups, all of it, uh, some acrimony, some bad blood, uh, attempted uh, olive branches, uh, some different on-ramps that have gone nowhere. Uh, how long have we been talking about this, Eric? It seems like forever, bud. I think you nailed all the twists and turns and the date. Like, it really was about 15 years ago when uh, former President Ken King laid out his first vision for what everybody knew the city would need a new rink at one point. I think we're it's 40 years old now. 1983, the, the Saddle Dome was built. And as beautiful as it is from the outside, uh, we all know that it's got some issues inside. So, yeah, it's been yeah. a long, you know, and it's been, it's been a war between, and it's not even a fair war. You've got one of the great, deal makers in Canadian business in, in Murray Edwards, one of the Flames owners, negotiating with people at City Hall um, who are really out of their league in terms of trying to negotiate anything of this magnitude. And, uh, and, 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 and so it was it just, they never seemed to jive, but it, it wasn't until the province, Daniel Smith stepped up as part of an election ploy. Don't get me wrong. It helped get her elected. Yeah. But she said, I'll donate $330 million to get this over the finish line. And you know what? I don't care what your politics are. This city needs a, an event center like that, a gathering place like this. And, uh, and, and, and if she's the one who's, uh, who's considered to be the white knight that got it done, good on her. Because uh, uh, otherwise, I don't think we would have been there yesterday at that press conference. So this is, I mean, these are agreements between, as you mentioned, the province, uh, the city, the Flames, and the Stampede as well. How does this agreement, uh, I know this is really early, and these are, these are baby steps here. We're just, you know, uh, not even in the crib to say anything about getting out of it. But what do we know by way of what this agreement could look like? Well, what we know is the $330 bucks that the, the province put in, not a dime of that is going to the arena. And I think for political reasons, that was probably a really good idea. Uh, because there's, you know, they never, the province never gave a dime to the Edmonton Oilers to, to help build their, their wonderful ice district. Um, but this is all about infrastructure in and around the building. And, and what's neat uh, in, in terms of, you, you asked about how the deal looks. I mean, you could break it down in a million different ways and spin it any way you want in terms of who's getting screwed and who's, who's paying too much, who's paying too little. But at the end of the day, the Calgary Flames are going to pay over $700 million towards this over the 35 years of this agreement. Um, so I'm not, I don't think anyone would suggest they're getting off easy. Now, it looks skimpy up front. I think their upfront cost, I think, is $40 million, and then they pay $17 million every year after that. And, boy, I think a lot of people look at that and go, oh, my gosh, 
that's not bad that a city builds you a rink and that's all you got to put up. But again, uh, over the years, it'll add up to 700 million. And, uh, and then of, of course, all the spinoffs that the city benefits from, uh, you know, the, the neat thing about this deal, Jeff is, you know, they had a deal in place and the flames backed out at the, you know, kind of the 11th hour. This was Christmas, 2021. And that was for a $600 million arena. And, uh, and the squabbling between them and the city, just the flames walked away. And you know what? That was for the best. Uh, this is now a $1.2 billion project. So it's not to say that the, everything will double in size and scope. There's obviously inflation built in there. But the scope of this thing is so much bigger and so much more in line with what the flames had wanted when they first proposed this 15 years ago, which is we want to transform this into a district. We don't want to just build an arena down on the stampede grounds. We want this to have a plaza in in front for people to gather outside. Uh, we want a gathering place inside. We want sea trains moving, you know, people in and out of it. It's it's an entire vision. And and you know what? It took 15 years, but it, I think history will show it was worth the wait because the, they, it looks to me like they've got it right. And they're looking at buildings like Detroit, Montreal. Uh, sure. Those to me are the ones that got it right the most. And they're going to be stealing a lot of ideas from those arenas, which is all great news. Yeah, you know, I, I think we're all curious what the um, what the local fla- flavor is going to be like in, in any new rink. I always think that it's it's nice when you have like the local accents uh, that reflect the community. Um, yeah. So I think we'll, we'll obviously all all stay tuned for that. But you know, it's interesting. I think you and I had this conversation once upon a time about you know coming out of the oh four oh five lockouts um, and the salary cap coming in, into place and remarkable that we look back and like that year, the salary cap, Eric was $39 million at the high end. <laughs> the low end was 21 million. We look at that. How do you survive? Uh, but nonetheless, yeah. um, you know, things like um, the rink experience became more important. Like rinks, things like rinks became more important as far as attracting players because he couldn't just overpay to get someone. Yeah. You know what? You might be playing in an old barn, but I got an extra two million from Calgary. I'm going to go there. When the money is capped, all these other types of things that the team needs to spend on to recruit players becomes that much more important. How much, because you're there, I'm not. How much have you heard players grouse about the rink, talk about it being, you know, harmful when it comes to recruiting, resigning, all of it, players to the Calgary Flames? Well, I, I think it's what pretty well documented that, it, that, you know, a place like Calgary right now is kind of pushing uphill in terms of uh, trying to attract people to Calgary. It's not on a, a lot of desirable lists, you know, for players to come here. And the arena was just one of those things. You know, the cold weather's another one. The travel's yeah. another one. You know, we, I could go on and on and on why it's a tough sell when you're trying to attract free agents. But when you check off at least one thing, which is the arena, then that's one less thing you got to worry about. I think that now the arenas around the league are so great that with just a few exceptions, like it's just understood, it's standard now that you're going to go to a place that's got all the amenities you could ever imagine and all the, all the things that a player's looking for in terms of his experience from the minute he walks into the rink to the time he leaves. So uh, I think that this is just, this will help. I don't think anyone's signing in Calgary anywhere in the next few years because they're thinking, God, I got to be playing in that arena. Because I just think there are so many great arenas around the league. Now they're just on par with everybody else is the way I'm going to look at it. And, you know, I, I wanted to go back to your, your comment just before you said, 
you know, you love the local flavors. And, God, I think Detroit's just so brilliant at what they did with, with all the yeah. way they've honored the old players and the old – it's just so wonderful in there. It's unfortunate that we're going to lose the Saddle Dome. And, and, I, and I know it's got to go anyway, and it's going to be demolished in three or four years. That'll be a very sad day, I think, for the hockey world because what a beautiful piece of architecture and how wonderfully uniquely Western Canadian to have a saddle-shaped building, yep. to call it the Saddle Dome. Like, that is so iconic and so sad for so many people. It had to go. And I will say that it looks like the new arena. The renderings for the last one that got kiboshed at the 11th hour it was pretty boring. I'm not expecting anything to just blow everybody's mind and say, wow, look how iconic that building looks from the outside, kind of like mm-hmm. just up the road in Edmonton. They've done a brilliant job with that. This is more going to be about inside what it's going to look like, and I think that'll have a distinctly Western Canadian flavor. Outside, I'm not so sure. We'll see where that ends up. Um, okay, so to the team itself. Um, the Backlund signing is one thing, and we're all wondering now uh, what happens with a couple of other key players, uh, Lindholm, and we wonder about Hannafin as well. You know, we wonder about Tanev. I mean, you've been through this and had these conversations going back all summer long. Uh, I'm sure, Eric, is there, a, is there a latest here? Is there a vibe? Is there a, a feeling uh, what Craig Conroy wants to do, and what those players who, let's face it, I mean, they're impending unrestricted free agents. They've got themselves in, you know, in, into this position uh, where they can walk away into, into unrestricted free agency. They've earned that in their career. Uh, but is there a, a feeling on what they're waiting for until they finally make up their mind? Is it a winning start? Is this like, you know, Elias Pettersson in Vancouver, I want to see if we can win here before I make up my mind if I'm going to commit long-term? What's it like? You, na- you nailed it. Like, the vibe here is phenomenal. I can tell you that, you know, the, the building is just another step in this process of increasing the feel-good in Calgary. I mean, I think it goes without saying, that. you know, I, I always use the, the term, there was a heaviness around this team last year, and it had a lot to do with the the culture that was built by the coach and, and all that. So that heaviness is dissipated. Now, every city at the beginning of the season is full of optimism and excitement, uh, I guess unless you're in Arizona, but any, anywhere other than that, you're, you're you're thinking that the sky's the limit. And here you've got a situation where if this team gets off to a good start, then I think the odds of getting an Elias Lindholm signed increase dramatically. Uh, and I think that I think it would be quite easy to get Tanev and Nikita Zadorov to sign on the dotted line as well if this team proves that it can get back to where it was a couple of years ago, where it was a, a real contender. Um, however, if they get off to a bad start then I think the odds of Lindholm signing here go down dramatically. And then, uh, and then there, there are a lot of different factors out there. But I, I don't see Hannafin signing here no matter what happens. I, I, just, I just think he's, he's set on the fact that there are greener pastures out there and he's, he's intent on, on, on chasing those. He, he's close mm-hmm. with, with Matthew Kachuk. He saw what happened to Matthew Kachuk, the lifestyle he leads, the house he lives on on the ocean, uh, the city he lives in, the flip-flops he wears every day. Like, I think that's pretty enticing for a lot of guys, and uh, yeah. and that's okay. That's okay. Hannafin has every right to go chase that, and I think that's – I would bet heavily that that's what's going to happen. But Lindholm, I still think he could be convinced to sign here if the money's right, and right now it sounds like it's just a, a dollars thing. 9.5 for Lindholm. Does that get it done? I don't think the Flames would consider signing him for 9.5. No, I think that's too high for them. I, I think that on the open market, 
uh, next year, I think he gets 9.5. I don't think there's any question about that. And that that's the that's the you know that's where he has the hammer and all this. He could say, guys, if you don't want to sign me to nine and a half, that's fine. I can get that in a number of cities. Um, mm-hmm. But the Flames are looking for look. We'll give you that extra year, but it can't be at nine. It can't be. It can't start with a nine for the Calgary Flames. I really believe the, that. You know the, the, the one thing that I wonder about there, though, Eric, is, I mean, it is crucial to find a a, 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 a long-term solution at the center position to play oh, yeah. with Jonathan Huberto, where they've made a significant investment. And the question then becomes, if not Lindholm, then who? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you've, you've made this oh, investment yeah. in Huberto. And now listen, Lindholm and his camp know this. And it's like, okay, well, what's your plan B here if I punt at the end of the season? Like, th- that has to be a factor in all these negotiations, no? And, a, and a, yes. And another factor is I think that they've tested the market. And I don't think that the return for an Elias Lindholm would be that significant uh, because, you know, very few teams can fit him into their cap. And as good a player as he is, I just, you know, so there's a lot of different factors. And, and yes. And that's the problem here. Lindholm is holding all the cards. And uh, the Calgary Flames desperately need him. Uh, in a lot of ways, I look at it and say they can't afford not to sign him, no matter what the price is. But uh, it's uh, there is a price that, that, that they won't go over. And I feel that that's where they're at right now. I, I don't know exactly where the numbers are at right now, but certainly the announcement that, you know, Cap's going up even more next year, or the, yeah. the, the, the illusion, not illusion, the, you know, the commissioner speaking to that, uh, that just bolsters uh, Lindholm's, uh, you know, situation even more. So, yeah, it, I would be very surprised if the number is a nine for him to stay in Calgary, but I won't be surprised yeah. if it's nine and a half somewhere else next year. Okay, so uh, in Toronto, there's a lot of curiosity about Fraser Minton. And in Boston, uh, Matthew Poitra has really turned heads as well. Sorry, Guelph Storm, I don't know that you're getting him back to start the season. Where are Flames fat at, fans at with Matthew Coronado right now? Yeah, there's a lot of excitement. I mean, uh, he's, he was up there amongst scoring leaders in the preseason. I know that counts for nothing, but it, it sure <laughs> it's, it, it's it's one thing it's one thing, Jeff, as you know, uh, you know, to just have a good camp. It's another to post numbers that are up there amongst league leaders. Like I, I do think that that's significant and. His shot is world-class. We'd heard that for years. Yep. Uh, we're seeing it in person here now. Uh, he has meshed quite well with uh, Backland. He, he's also meshed quite, quite well with Kadri. Um There's zero question, I think, coming into camp that the Flames were going to start the season with Coronado as their second-line right winger, uh, and I don't think anything's changed in that regard. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Sharon Govich hasn't quite worked out on the top line like they hoped he would so far. It's just in camp. Maybe Coronado by the end of the season could be their top line right winger. I don't think anyone would be surprised at that. But we don't, you know, mm-hmm. the expectations are high. Uh, the the preseason's been quite fruitful for him, and uh, and 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 so everyone in the organization has got to be feeling really good about Coronado for sure. I I don't, I don't think anyone would be thinking that. I'm crazy in suggesting 20 to 25 goals this year. It's not out of the question. Wow. That's uh that would be a bonanza for the flames. If, uh, if the former first round pick can, uh, can nail that many. Um, let me, uh, let me close by asking you about Dustin Wolf. Now uh, the latest news around goaltenders in the NHL Spencer Knight has just been sent down uh, to AHL Charlotte by the Florida Panthers, get him some playing time. So Anthony Stolarz will be the backup. Uh, behind Sergei Bobrovsky in Florida with the Panthers. But I think there were more than a few eyebrows raised that 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 Dustin Wolf got sent down to the Wranglers. 
I think there was, at least from outside of Calgary, people, you know, looking in saying, well, you know, Dustin Wolf has earned a spot on this Flames roster based on the last two seasons in the American League. Um, but then, you know, I was having this conversation with Elliot on the podcast and he was saying, look, he needed to, he needed to take a job at training camp and he didn't do it. Um, and then I wonder, well, what have the last two years been for, for Dustin Wolf? How do you see that situation? And the net minder now finds himself in the American league. Well, I, I can tell you, I was not surprised at all that they sent him down. I know there's been a lot of talk about this being an open competition and the organization is, organization is fully, uh, of the belief that this kid, there's nothing more he needs to prove in the American Hockey League. So that's that's not the issue. The issue is uh, this kid needs to keep playing 60 games a year, no matter where that is. And it could be a combination between the NHL team and the uh, and the Wranglers. And I do think you're going to see him with the Calgary Flames for a handful of games early. I would suggest by the end of the season he'll probably play in eight to ten, depending on where they are in the standings. Uh, mm-hmm. They're going to try and get him in there. If there's an injury, obviously that's no problem to slide him up there. But they want him playing, and but he's still what 21, 22. Uh, he's 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 the best goalie in the world. That's not in the National Hockey League. I, I fully believe that. The question mm-hmm. is, you know, how do you deal with this three-headed monster? This organization tried carrying three goalies about uh, eight or nine years ago, and it was an absolute yeah, disaster. You can't can't do that. So, nope. Vladar is a very capable backup, and I have no doubt in my mind is going to be a starter in the league at some point in the next two or three years. Uh, it won't be in Calgary, I don't believe. And so they've got two years left of Vladar, and at some point they will trade him. There's no question. They will trade him. The question is when, uh, you know, where the Flames are in the standing. And I'll, I'll close by saying this. Like, if this was a team that was building uh, or rebuilding, yeah. then I would say for sure Dustin Wolf would be starting the season with them. But this is a team that two years ago won the division, albeit they've lost two superstars and things have changed dramatically. But they're in win now mode and they really believe that they're a contender. True. And so you don't, you don't very rarely are you a contender with a rookie goaltender on your roster. So, you know, Vladar, it's his job, unless he falters tremendously, uh, Vladar will be here most of the season, I would believe. Excellent points. Uh, thanks for sharpening the pencil on everything on uh, the rink and the team. Uh, you're the best. Eric, thanks as always for stopping by, pal. Thanks, Jeff. Good job with you, buddy. There is uh, the great Eric Francis uh, filling us in on their latest with the uh, the rink and the arena uh, and the land development and the entertainment center around uh, what's going to be the new proposed rink in Calgary. Also, the Flames team. And by the way, I think they might be the most interesting team. Like they must be the the biggest wild card team in the entire Western Conference. Uh, they were close. Right, and we all know what happened with Daryl Sutter, the head coach, last year, and as Eric mentioned, the culture around it and the dark clouds and all that. But that has all been lifted. Uh, new people at new uh, positions, whether it's behind the bench with Ryan Huska, Craig Conroy comes in as a general manager after Treliving, uh goes to Toronto. It, it's it's a breath of fresh air right now in Calgary. I'm really curious to see what damage they do and who they can knock out of the blocks in the Western Conference and try to get themselves a playoff spot. Coming up in hour two, Kelly McCrimmon, GM of the uh, Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights. Also, you'll hear from Jack Hughes of the New Jersey Devils, part of an interview that Elliot and I did at the NHL Players Tour in Vegas. Put in moments. And we'll see how this one works out, folks. It is the random hockey fact of the day. I think you'll like the inaugural one. Stay tuned. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Back in a moment. Deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The JD Bunkins Podcast. 
Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Jeff Merrick's random hockey fact of the day. We'll see how this one goes. Love the music on this one, by the way, boys. Well done. Yes, the random hockey fact of the day this uh, season will replace the random player of the day. Thought we'd grow this a little bit and expand it out a little bit more. So no longer is it biographies of random hockey players. It's going to just be hockey facts. You know, I, I, I kind of look at this program uh, part as a radio show and a way to get information out and interact with you as much as possible. But it's also kind of therapy for me, folks. I'm not going to lie. This is uh, me getting on the, uh, the hockey shrink's couch and just getting everything out of my head. So it's going to be random hockey facts every single day here to kick off hour two. Today, thinking about fights and brawls, okay, and how to break them up specifically. Now, every now, like, we don't get brawls anymore. Like, I remember back when I was a kid, some of those Edmonton-Calgary games or the Montreal Canadian-Quebec Nordiques or the New York Ranger-Newark Islanders games would take three or four hours to play. They spent as much time picking up gloves and sticks off the ice as they did actually playing. But those days are long gone. But they used to be a staple, right? They used to be a staple around hockey, all around North America. And the interesting thing about it, or one of the interesting things about it, is if you look back now, did you ever wonder to yourself, how did they get them to stop? Like when these brawls started, and these were like full on, like it wasn't just, you know, the the five players on each team on the ice at the time. It was everybody and guys piling over the boards as well. And going back to when, you know, the, the, the rules of hockey were, were codified and we started playing on a consistent basis and leagues popped up, amateur, professional, senior, etc. Yeah, some of these games were pretty rough and a lot of them led to brawls. Here's something for you, and this is the random fact of the day. What the officials used to use to break up brawls was music. In Canada, specifically the Royal Anthem of Canada, God Save the Queen, or as it was in the 50s, which is the first traceable time where I could find this, God Save the King. So a lot of this centers around maritime hockey, Cape Breton Island, Glace Bay Miners, Sydney Millionaires, Vicious vicious games. Games for keeps. Now, Stephen Cole writes about this in the uh, Canadian Hockey Atlas. Also cites Windsor, Nova Scotia, which some maintain is the birthplace of hockey, which is another debate we can have another day, is where a lot of these brawls took place. So the way that it used to work is if the referees, the officials, lost control of a brawl, what they would do is indicate play God Save the Queen, or in this case, God Save the King, over the loudspeakers. Because the rule of the day, the law of the day was, no matter where you were, at school, at work, walking down the streets, or in this case, playing hockey, the minute you heard God Save the King or God Save the Queen, you had to stop what you were doing and stand at attention. 
that would essentially end brawls. Whether it was Glace Bay versus Sydney, whether it was Sydney versus Windsor, or Halifax versus Windsor, that's how they ended brawls. Now, I've got video evidence of this firsthand. As many of you know, I'm a sort of an amateur hockey tape trader, collector, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In the 1965 Memorial Cup that took place in Edmonton, it's a famous brawl. This is the Derek Sanderson, Bob Falkenberg incident, with you know police hitting the ice to break up the fight. You haven't lived, folks, until you've seen a hockey brawl where cops actually hit the ice, running on the ice, slipping, falling, tripping, rolling, all of it, trying to drag kids away from one another. And the fascinating, this happened at the old Edmonton Gardens. And faintly in the background, you can hear them try to calm down the Edmonton Oil Kings and the Niagara Falls Flyers by playing God Save the Queen. Did it work? No, in that example. But that was what they were supposed to do. That's what they were instructed to do, to try to get everybody to stop brawling. Play God Save the Queen. As it has been said before, music has charms to soothe a savage beast. And your random hockey fact of the day is they used to use that to try to break up brawls in Canada. Tell me how there used to be respect in the game. (laughs) They used to have to use an anthem to break up brawls. Music soothes the savage beast. Uh, Okay, coming up at the bottom of the hour. That's your random hockey fact of the day. I'll do this every single day. Maybe not as long as this one. Just shoot a fact out to kick off hour two and get us warmed up here. Um, Collect them if you feel inclined. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, Kelly McCrimmon, GM of the Vegas Golden Knights, Stanley Cup champions. In the meantime, want to play part of this interview here that Elliot and I did with Jack Hughes. Now, The New Jersey Devils, uh, I've referred to them as the new hotness around the NHL, and they really are. Like, again, preseason doesn't mean anything, although when you go perfect, and we'll see, they're playing again tonight, they play the Islanders, Um, we'll see what happens if they go, if they can beat the Islanders tonight and run the table in the exhibition season before they open up next week against the Detroit Red Wings. The New Jersey Devils have really been a story, and the New Jersey Devils last year was a story. And for a couple of seasons leading into last year, the one thing we always said about New Jersey was, it's a really good team, but man, they need a save. Like a lot of good work, even before they got to last season, was being done by the New Jersey Devils, and it was all being undone by bad goaltending. Like it was the one team where you looked at it and you said the old cliche to yourself, you know, when you look at goaltending, it's 70% of your team if you have it, and it's 100% of the team if you don't. And for the New Jersey Devils, it was 100% of the team when they didn't, and it undid all the good things that they were doing. Um, have they found their combination in Vitek Vanacek and Akira Schmid? Maybe. They certainly hope so. I know that it is one area of concern for a lot of New Jersey Devils fans or just hockey observers in general. But the New Jersey Devils, going back to last season, have really been a story. And I think everybody's expecting them to take their next big step. Now they're going to skate with the weight of expectation for the first time in a long time. You know, players like Nico Heischer and Jack Hughes uh, and Luke Hughes, for that matter, as well, go into the season with um, not essentially playing with house money and not being able to sneak up on anybody. 
Everybody knows how good the New Jersey Devils are. Everybody watched that Rangers series last season when they went down to Cobb and then came storming back to win, for, like, to, to beat the, the New York Rangers. And as Jack Hughes is going to tell us here in this interview in a couple of moments, it kind of was the Stanley Cup for them. And then they ended up flaming out against Carolina Hurricanes in the subsequent round. But we're all expecting big things out of the New Jersey Devils. And if you haven't had a chance to watch this team in the last couple of seasons, do yourself a favor. Because whether you stick with the entire New Jersey Devil game or you just want to drop in for a period, there will be something that you'll really find entertaining about the New Jersey Devils, whether it's something that Hughes does, whether it's something that Brat does, whether it's something that Hamilton does. Kevin Ball, by the way, looking really good in that combination with John Marino on the back end. Looks really nice. We'll see what happens with Luke Hughes. But there's always something. There's some flypaper with the New Jersey Devils. Anyhow, long-winded way of saying it's the new hotness. Enjoy them. And one of the go-to interviews when you're talking about the New Jersey Devils is Jack Hughes. From the now legendary Hughes family in the NHL, Quinn Hughes, Captain Vancouver Canucks, Luke Hughes patrolling the blue line uh, on the New Jersey Devils with his brother, first-line center, Jack Hughes, playing with Bratton Toffoli. That's a really nice-looking line. So this is a conversation Elliot and I had with Jack Hughes in Vegas at the NHL Players Tour. Enjoy the greatness that is Jack Hughes on the Merrick Show. Jack Hughes, number 86, New Jersey Devils. Okay, so Jack, a few weeks ago, Elliot and I were in Stockholm, European NHL Players Tour, and we talked to, amongst other people, Jesper Bratt. Guess who he was talking about when he said this? He skates like a magician. <laughs> Give him the puck and skate to an open lane. Who was he talking about? He was talking about me. Yes, he was. Because he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> or is he accurate? Do you really skate like a magician? I don't know if skating like a magician is a thing. <laughs> Playing like a magician. Yep. I don't know. But Bradder, great guy, great player. Mm -hmm. A lot of respect for him. What's it like playing with him? I mean, he's played with you. He's played with Nico, a couple yeah. of centers. Like, from a center's point of view, what's it like playing with him? I love playing with Bradder because it's like the same with Azegris when I played at the program. Bradder, we don't even have to talk about hockey. Mm -hmm. We get on the ice and it's like he knows exactly my reads and I know his reads because we're so similar in the way we skate and handle the puck. Mm -hmm. And... There's no selfishness whatsoever. It's like finding each other, working off each other, delays, pull-ups. It just like meshes so well. So I, I love playing with Bradder. And like he works so hard in the summer that it's no surprise that every year he takes another step forward and he gets better every year. Is there a goal or a play last year that you would tell everyone to go look up and say that is the quintessential Hughes-Brat play? Yeah, I mean... There's been a lot of goals where on the power play, either one of us is on our forehand side looking, looking, and then we just turn our wrist and right through the seam for a one-timer. But the goal that sticks out the most for me is against Carolina late in the season to make it 2 nothing. It was a four-on-four. Four. It was like Shea and or Pesci and Shea, I think. They had really good gaps, and they got the long sticks, obviously. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't happen much because they're great defensemen, but we like give and go. And I delayed right at the blue line just enough to not go off sides, but enough to pull it back so that 
they didn't poke check me and Brad was just darting and I found him and he scored. And to me, that's perfect. It's like give and go, give and go, read off each other, bang, scoring chance. That's awesome. You know what you sound like? I used to do a bit more golf and you go to the players. They'd come off the course, they'd go to the press room and they'd say, go through your birdies and your bogeys. And they would say, okay, on one, I took a three iron off the tee. I put it to here. Like they could remember all their shots. Can you do that with hockey plays? Like, do you have that kind of mind that you remember everything? If you asked me every single play from the season now, I can remember pretty much all my goals and a good chunk of points, I'd say. Really? I'd say so. What's your favorite play from last year? Of me personally? Yeah. My favorite play was my goal against Philadelphia on the power play. Talk us through it. It was similar to my Ottawa goal. We were on the power play. They just like dumped one down, but they didn't get it all the way down the ice. And they were changing and I like looped this way. And then I like came down and I kind of weaved through Provorov, but like I put it on the back of his heels. So like just enough where like the guy coming off the bench couldn't get me because he had to get to the far side. Provorov came this way. My favorite part about the goal is like my footwork when I score because I like, I don't just stick handle with my hands. It was like with my feet too. And that's been something I've been working on for years. So it's my favorite play because it's like, like shifting my weight. So the goalie moves. And when I go on my backhand, he thinks I'm going backhand, but I bring it back to my forehand. And I have pretty much the whole blocker side just from like the way my feet are moving. It's almost like stick handling with your feet instead of your hands. That's awesome. I love hearing craft stuff like this. Okay, let me, let me take that one step further then. How much in your mind do you have a book on goalies in the NHL? Because what's going to work against the Flyers might not work against the Rangers, yeah. might not work against the Penguins. I would say a lot of elite goal scorers have a pretty good book, even if they would say they don't. Some guys' shots are just so good they can just yeah. beat the goalie. But, like, I would say there's probably five or six guys in the league maybe that can be at the top of the circles and just beat the goalie no screen. And I'm definitely not one of those guys. <laughs> I, I was gonna. So, I, remember, I remember having these conversations around draft time. It's like, in junior, you can blow pucks past goalies. You can't do that in, in the, the NHL. NHL. It's different. They're so good. But I watch a lot of hockey, so obviously you see where goals go in. A lot of stuff is, like, repetitive too like it's at the end of the day it's hockey like mm -hmm. if you get a puck in a certain spot low blocker is going to be your best chance to score depending on the angle but like in division you know a lot like Sorokin or Shersterkin they probably know my game like better than someone in the Pacific just like I know their game better than someone in the Central so I'd say definitely the Metropolitan you you have your your little secrets What's a secret on Shesterkin? Well, wouldn't it be a secret? If I, no. <laughs> well, come on. You can't. Honestly, you, I got to try. <laughs> I can't even say there's secrets on him. He's going to see this too. Like, he's so good that sometimes you just got to get a puck on net. You know, like he's a top two goalie in the league, in my opinion, him and Vasilevsky. So I hate gassing him up because he's a Ranger too. <laughs> but uh, he's top goalie for sure. Speaking of Rangers, how much was that? I mean, it's not the Stanley Cup, but how much did it feel like your Stanley Cup last year beating the Rangers? Yeah, that was definitely part of the problem in the Carolina series mm. was that, like, the Rangers series was so, like, emotional because yeah. you knew it was happening for, like, 
three months before it happened too. Oh yeah. From February on, we knew we were playing the Rangers. It was pretty much who got home ice, but then like, was it even home ice because they're so close to each other? So that was just like, we went down 2-0. Then the overtime goal, Dougie, like biggest goal of the year. Because mm-hmm. if we lose that, we're down 3-0, we're done. Score that, massive, we're like crazy in the locker room. Then game four, we take it to him. Game five, we take it to him. Game six, we're like, all right, let's go. We're going to beat them. Like they're down and out. Game six, they dominate us. Game seven, Colorado played the night before. Colorado loses to Seattle. Everyone's like, Anything is possible tomorrow. And then we played great game seven. And then we played two days later in Carolina. And we were just probably flat because, one, we were a young team that we were so emotionally invested in the Rangers series that we might have taken the Carolina series a little easy at the start, which we shouldn't have done because they're such a good team. But... That's what we're learning. I have to ask you, you didn't talk about it at the time, and you can tell me if you don't want to talk about it now. I heard you were hurt. How bad was it? Yeah, I mean, like, I didn't think I was going to play. But I'm a hockey player. Like, you go in the room, get shot up, and then what are you going to do with one of the boys? Like, they look at you, and you're going to say no. But, like, that's all I had to give Mm -hmm. with my final game. But definitely no golfing for, like, a month after. So it was was something. It was, was, yeah, it was – Enough where I was like, would have been tough to play game six. Mm-hmm. Good on you. That Ranger series, was there a moment, because I always think about boxers, and a boxer would say, yeah, you know what? I didn't put him out to the eighth, but he quit in the fifth. But it took a while to get him to a place where he counted the lights. Was there a moment where you knew you had the Rangers? Honestly, no, because it was such a give and take series. Like, It was more of like the first two games, they won solely off their power plays. And I went in the media. We were like, I think we were all on the same page. Like we did not get to our game, you know? We weren't Mm -hmm. playing well. We beat them three to four times in the regular season. So we were confident heading in. We thought we were the better team. And we just didn't get to our game. And they were on the power play. So we were like, if we just stop taking stupid penalties, we'll be in really good shape. And that showed in-game three, four, and five. Mm-hmm. Game six, we thought they were done. But it's the New York Rangers, like Patty Kane, Panarin, Zabinajad, <laughs> Shesterk, and Foxy. Like, yeah. they're not going anywhere. Like, those are elite, elite players. And then game seven, you know, anything happens in game seven. Now there's expectations. You know, the Devils have gone from, eh, to you're now one of the favorites. Yeah. How does it feel? It's good. It's, it, I was just telling you, it's exciting. Yeah. You know, because in previous years, it's like you're walking into camp and what's going to happen this year? What pick are we going to get? Who are we dishing at the deadline? <laughs> like, and even last year, we were like, all right, like it's time to take a step. Like, we're no longer the young team that can just use that as an excuse every year. Like, it's time to be like, Let's go. It's time to make playoffs. We got to start winning some hockey games now. Because at what point is it like, maybe Hughes, Heischer, Brad, maybe they aren't the guys if they can't win any hockey games, you know? doesn't matter how young they are. But last year was crazy because we just like exploded and no one saw it coming. 
And then this year we have expectations. And I don't think, I think for us, like last year we set wins record and points record for the Devils. Can we do that every year for the next 10 years? <laughs> no, it's impossible. Mm-hmm. We don't need to do that. We just need to work on our game through games 1 to 10, 10 to 20, and try to get better and better and better and get to the playoffs. And by the time we get to the playoffs, hopefully be in full-fledged and be kicking well. So you're like a 10-game segment guy. That's the way you look at it? Yeah, I think, and especially this year, because last year we're like, we made the playoffs, we won a round, and now there's all these expectations on us. I think if we go into the season and be like, we got to do this, we got to do that, it's just going to collapse. I think if we go 10 games at a time and we we try to have a really good 10-game segment, play well, then we move on to the next 10. And that's just like not putting the cart before the horse. Does the number 100, <laughs> as you smile and laugh, yeah. what does that number mean to you? Yeah, I mean, like I'm a competitive person, so definitely a little like, <laughs> damn, you know, you wanted that. I wanted that yep. because I'm competitive. That's, yeah. you're so close and you dream of being a star and you, you want to be a hundred point guy. Luckily we were making playoffs. So yep. once the season ended, bang, you're on to the next and your whole focus changes into like team, 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 winning hockey games. I could have no points in the series. We win hockey games. All is good. But definitely like at some point in my career, I want to be a hundred point guy and I believe I will be. So I just got to stay on the path I'm on and keep my nose to the grind and I should get there. Tell us about the summer of the Hughes brothers. Do we want to know like training wise or fun wise? No, I I don't care about the training. I know you train. You take your hockey. I want to hear about the fun stuff. Well, we went on a few trips, first of all. But yeah, we got the house back in Michigan. We're always on the lake, friends over, playing pool, ping pong, golfing, tennis. You won't see us much like on the couch, just hanging. You know, we're like out and about doing stuff, golfing, playing tennis, like I said. So who's winning this summer? Like who had the winning summer? Golf, without question me. Tennis, I'm a good tennis player. Pool, I was so bad. We just got a pool table and we were, uh, keeping track of every game but like our friends too so there's like 20 guys on a chalkboard luke was like 200 and like 144 like he had like 350 games down like it's competitive like me and quinn would be like 10 o'clock at night and we'd just be like snap up we'd be like you want to play some ping pong then we'd like play ping pong till like 12 at night just like chopping it up and grinding so we love it we're always doing active stuff and Pretty much that. All right, we got to wrap, but I want to ask you one last thing. Okay. Quinn Hughes, captain, Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, I mean, uh, surprised I didn't hear that on 32 Thoughts. <laughs> at hey, some we, time. Did, we did say we thought it was coming. <laughs> we we, uh, we yeah. winked that. Yeah, we did happened. say we thought it was well, coming. Well, we listened to you guys. We got a 30-minute ride to the rink, so we always listen, put, and put you guys And you're that bored, on. are you? <laughs> yeah, you no, there's no talking to me and Quinn, but as a family, we're really happy for him. I think it's really well-deserved. I think people probably, like, look on the outside and are like, oh, Quinn's reserved, quiet guy, but, you know, he's a really focused... I think Talk said it. They did some really uncomfortable things, spoke up. Once Bo left, he was the guy that would talk in front of the media, which isn't easy. I watched Nico do the same thing all those years when we were losing. Like, I'm the first guy to take my gear off. Like, damn, that was 
bad game. Nico got has to sit in the stall and take questions he doesn't want to take. And, you know, Quinn had to do the same thing yep. last year. So I think he's a really well-liked guy in that locker room. And obviously he's a guy that everyone on the team can connect with. You know, he's just a really good guy. So I'm done talking. We're wrapping it up. <laughs> he'll do great. He'll do great. We all know he'll do yep. great. Uh, and as will you. Jack, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jack. That is Jack Hughes of the New Jersey Devils uh, in action tonight against the Islanders, closing out the exhibition season before they open up next week, uh, game one against the Detroit Red Wings. Um, New Jersey looks good, man. I know everyone's saying it. Actually, you know who else is looking better than maybe you might expect is the Arizona Coyotes? But I don't think that's going to be the headline around them this season, is it? No. All eyes on, what, January, February, when we find out if they're staying in Arizona or they're going elsewhere. Salt Lake City. Excuse me. Uh, I'm going to come back and talk to Kelly McCrimmon, general manager of the Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, if you had a chance to watch last night, I know it's just exhibition. But this deep into the exhibition season, the games kind of start to look like real NHL games, folks. And you saw Colorado go up three early, and then you saw the comeback by the Vegas Golden Knights. Pavel Dorofiev gets his first, Jonathan Marchessault, Nicholas Waugh, and Paul Cotter. Uh, with the game winner, Vegas comes back against one of their many rivals because doesn't it feel like Vegas is everybody's rival? Like r- something happened with Vegas where they turned into everybody's bitter rival here somehow. I'll ask Kelly about that in a couple of seconds. A big 4-3 exhibition season win. Last night, the Vegas Golden Knights over the Avalanche. McCrimmon in moments. Uh, we'll talk about repeating and we'll talk about can Vegas do anything with the sphere? Because that thing is spectacular. Uh, Everything Vegas with Kelly McCrimmon as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Back in a moment. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program here Monday to Friday, starting at uh, noon Eastern. Good to be back talking hockey with you. And uh, who better to welcome onto the uh, maiden voyage of this program for the season than the general manager of the defending Stanley Cup champions. He is Kelly McCrimmon, and he joins me now. Kelly, how are you? I'm doing real good, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. First of all, uh, off the hockey uh, beat here, can I get your thoughts on uh, on the sphere in Vegas? I mean, the visuals are spectacular. The highlights from the YouTube concerts look tremendous. Is there anything in the back of your mind, hockey, that can be done at the sphere in Vegas? Well, not playing it. The you know the discussion <laughs> yesterday about the potential of the draft being there is uh, is exciting. Yeah. The the building is pretty much the eighth wonder of the world. It's uh, yeah. been I think three years in the making. Two point three billion dollars, and uh, the uh, you know just the, the the video you see from uh, the opening night and the, the different things that have gone on there. Just even the outside of it, with all the different things they run on the outside of it, the eyeball or the smiley yeah. face or a tennis ball, a basketball, the different uh, things that they can do. It is absolutely fascinating. And, uh, you know, were the draft to be held there, it would be, uh, it would be a draft unlike uh, any other, that's for oh. sure. 
Uh, Macklin Celebrini, Cole Eiserman, uh, pay attention. You may be headed to the Sphere in June. Um, I am curious too, Kelly, because you know you've you've been in Vegas for a while now. How often or how often does something actually shock you about Vegas now? Because we're all looking at the Sphere and we're saying, "Wow, like this is spectacular." Do you still get surprised by anything in Vegas? Uh, surprised by, you know, just the constant updating and change. There's a, you know, a brand new casino being built where you think there, you know, there's no room. There's going to be a baseball stadium potentially uh, right on yep. uh, the Las Vegas Strip. Well, the last time you came to Las Vegas, I'm guessing you didn't think there's enough uh, uh, open area to build a baseball stadium. So the sphere itself, mm. you know, just the the the, 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 the footprint that it. Uh, occupies so yeah there's uh, uh lots of creativity lots of ingenuity state-of-the-art uh type construction and uh you know all things vegas are uh, the biggest and best in terms of the entertainment uh that they provide you know you, you you mentioned baseball in vegas as well and you know nfl is there major league baseball is on the horizon how much does the vegas golden knights organization look at themselves as you know, uh, like, look, we're Neil Armstrong here. Everybody else is Buzz Aldrin. We were first. We were the Pied Piper, however you want to describe it. How much do you look at your organization and say, you know what? We planted the, the pro sports flag here first. Uh, I think that's really, uh, uh, you know, accurate. I think we are proud of that. It's uh, it's such a sports city now, and of course it was always off limits for so many years. And then I think when you add to that something that I think is a really important piece of this, we're the only team uh, here that was homegrown. And yep. that connection to the city is uh, always going to be what uh, you know differentiates us from uh, the other pro sports. And we may well end up with all four major pro sports here uh, at some time in the future. But I think that uh, the connection that the team uh, has with the fan base in the city, you know, uh, in large part galvanized from the early uh, early tragedy in uh, in year one. It's been a love mm-hmm. affair uh, ever since, and then obviously last year uh, with the team uh, winning the Stanley Cup, it just uh, you know does what it would do to any fan base. Of course, uh, it's uh, it's been uh, pretty exciting for our fans. You know, it is interesting too, Kelly. I just mentioned this before you came on because you're right. That that first season after the tragedy, everybody you know fell in love with and felt with um, uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, and I'm sure the organization felt that that groundswell of support. But somewhere along the way, this team turned into the good guys that everybody was cheering for into the villains of the NHL. Like, I was thinking, like, just rivalries that you have. Like, and I'm watching you guys play Colorado last night. You go down 3 nothing, and then here comes the comeback, and once again, you stick it uh, to the avalanche. Like, there's no love lost between these two organizations. The the heat between Vegas and Edmonton is well told. The Los Angeles Kings, and I want to get to the hit on Stone here in a couple of seconds. I mean, that's a real burning rivalry. Dallas, I mean, it seems as if, well, Minnesota, Minnesota you guys in Minnesota always make fantastic games. I mean, the, the two styles of the teams always produce great hockey games. What is it about this Vegas team that just seems to bring out the ire in everybody around them now? Well, that might be a better question for the people that, uh, that don't like us, Jeff. <laughs> I, I, uh, I think we're quite likable, uh, quite frankly. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I guess likely the, uh, uh, the team has had quite a bit of success and, um, uh, you know, we've been aggressive in terms of how we've 
uh, built our roster, so that could be part of it. It's interesting with the rivalries. Uh, I've never experienced a rivalry rivalry like Vegas and San Jose when we uh, yeah. when we first were getting started, and of course the you know the game seven where we were up three nothing, they came back, and uh, you know the major penalty, they came back and won the game in overtime, and yep. uh, that was a uh, uh, you know there was a real uh, two way hatred uh, in the, in that rivalry, and then of course. You know, Pete DeBoer, who was coaching that San Jose team, ends up, uh, you know, being our coach as, uh, as time went mm-hmm. on. But, you know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the teams that you did, and uh, there's some great teams on the west side, and we uh, had a really good series. When you play a team in the playoffs, I think it, it uh, you know, automatically adds a little bit of rivalry to the following season. So with Edmonton uh, and Dallas, uh, who you mentioned, two really good teams, uh, Los Angeles for me is always, you know, I think in our fans' minds that would be the automatic rivalry would be LA, just with the proximity and and uh, uh, you know just with it being Los Angeles. So I think that's uh, that's a good one. But you know, we uh, we're trying to win. I, I don't think we've ever apologized for that. But I think that uh, you know there's lots of teams in the league that do uh, the same things we do. I look at uh, you know a team we have a ton of respect for, Tampa Bay, with you know, the decisions that they have to make to, uh, to be what they are and have enjoyed the success that they've enjoyed. So uh, we're not alone. We, uh, uh, we're trying to do what we can to help our team win. Kelly McCrimmon, Vegas Golden Knights uh, general manager, defending Stanley Cup champions, joins me here on the Merrick Show. You know, Glenn Sather used to always talk about, uh, you know, when the Oilers were in their dynasty run, talking about how important it was uh, every year to change the lineup. I think it's like between, he said, between 10 to 15%. There needs to be some some new blood, something fresh uh, coming in uh, every season. Now I know that the realities, you mentioned Tampa, the realities of the salary cap sort of dictate that that's going to happen anyway. Uh, for any successful team. But in, in your mind, Kelly, do you have an idea of, just in order to keep things fresh, you know, winking back at what Sather said so many years ago, an idea of, you know, how you keep it fresh, how much churn you need to have on one team to be, to stay successful? Yeah, I do. I, I, I would agree with, uh, you know, with the premise that he, uh, you know, lived by with, uh, with the Oilers. I think that some roster churn, uh, you know, can be beneficial, Interestingly, we've had less, uh, you know, we missed the playoffs in 2021-22. We did less with our roster that offseason than, uh, than probably any of the previous offseasons. We, uh, you know, traded for Aiden Hill because we lost uh, Robin Leonard. We added Phil Kessel uh, as, a, as a free agent. You know, so those would have been the moves that summer. And then this summer we were able to, you know, return our team almost intact. And I guess because we won, we uh, we see that as being a good thing. Most uh, of the, you know, I think you have to go back to uh, uh, L.A. in the early two, in 2012, I believe, were the last team to return uh, their entire roster after a Stanley Cup. So we uh, have only had the one loss to our team with Riley Smith being, uh, being moved to Pittsburgh mm. in the offseason. Other than that, our team uh, is intact. We see that as a good thing. But uh, you know, we'll see how the year goes if, uh, if there's changes along the way that uh, that are made. And it's interesting, you know, Phil Kessel played on our team last year. He started the playoffs for us. He came out of the lineup, and uh, you know, had uh, one of our uh, veteran players say uh, in the exit meetings, "We don't win the Stanley Cup without Phil Kessel." And I thought that was uh, you know a real compliment to what he brought to the group and uh you know he's uh, you know he's you know well known in 
yeah. all over the league, but just the personality that he had, the way that he carried himself, the the players loved him, and uh, and he helped their team win. You know, Jonathan Quick came in and uh, you know backed our team, backed up our goaltenders right throughout the playoffs, and uh, you know certainly helped our team win, even though he never. Uh, played a minute in the Stanley Cup playoffs, he contributed to our team winning. So, you know, some of those dynamics of a, of a locker room and uh, the chemistry of a team that aren't necessarily measured, uh, you know, by analytics or statistics or uh, or the different metrics uh, that are available, uh, some of those things still are uh, really important in terms of uh, the makeup of your team. You know, Kelly, I, I know that um, as part of the job, uh, emotionally, it, it, it's better if you're sort of, I don't know, cold might be too strong a term, but I think you know what I'm going here. You, you can't be emotionally attached to your players because it might cloud your decisions. But having said that, when you guys won the Stanley Cup last year and you looked at your roster, were there a couple of guys that you were really happy for? Maybe, you know, more, I don't know, more so than anybody else, but were there a couple of guys you felt really good about them getting a Stanley Cup? For sure, Jeff. Um, you know, first in uh, in our organization, those uh, those original players, the the six misfits that uh, that yep. we had, which of course was Smith, Carlson, uh, Marcheseau, William Carrier, Braden McNabb, Shea Theodore. Those players were uh, part of our expansion season and have been in the organization uh, in our entire existence. Very happy uh, for those players. Uh, you know Jack Eichel to uh, hmm. uh, you know play as well as he did to become a Stanley Cup champion. Uh, you know the critic, the criticism that he's uh, had to endure along the way, which in my opinion he's done with uh, tremendous class. Uh, how well he played, he was so good in the in the playoffs. And you know to me, you know it just takes his career to a different level now that he's had that uh, playoff uh, success. Certainly happy. Uh, for him, Mark Stone to be able to overcome what he uh, has overcome to uh, to be able to be a Stanley Cup champion certainly uh, uh, very happy uh, for him. You know the the players in our organization that had won previously, so that's your Barbashev, your Petrangelo's, your Stevensons, your Martinez. I mentioned Phil uh, Kessel, Jonathan Quick. Those guys really add to the mix. And in talking with uh, with some of those players after. You know, they have a different perspective uh, when they win their second cup or in the case of uh, Martinez uh, and, and Quick, their third cup. So that's, uh, that's kind of neat to, uh, to observe as well. But it's, uh, you know, the, to see the joy on the players' faces, I've said this in different interviews that I've done since, the, since then, um, you know, that just is really rewarding. That's, uh, that's why we all play. That's uh, what the end goal is. That's when... Uh, you have the ultimate satisfaction where you feel like the job is done and you did it successfully uh, to see how happy the players are uh, when that happens is really, uh, uh, really neat. Uh, Kelly, you mentioned um, Mark Stone there a couple of seconds ago, and I, I am curious your your thoughts on the Hayden Hodgson hit from the uh, the exhibition game against the Los Angeles Kings. And uh, I think we all understand that, you know, in preseason, there's an unwritten rule amongst veterans uh, that you don't go out of your way to take a run at another veteran. Like, that's not what the preseason is for. You're getting yourself into uh, into game timing and game shape for the uh, for the season. But for kids that are trying to make a roster, 
I don't know that that same courtesy exists. Obviously, it doesn't. Uh, how did you view the Hayden Hodgson hit on Mark Stone? And by the way, his comments afterwards, I, I think, is, you know, someone who works in media, we took great delight in hearing. Yeah, the hit was the hit was a clean hit by, uh, you know, a young guy trying to make an impression uh, in the preseason. I think there's a heightened sensitivity from our team for anyone who hits Mark because of the, uh, you know, the injuries he's had, the surgeries he's had, the, the, the flat-out abuse that the guy took uh, in the playoffs with, uh, with the teams we were playing uh, again. So there's a heightened sensitivity there that, uh, you know, I, I don't have any you know, strong feelings on it one way or the other other than to say uh, the hit was clean. And I understand, uh, you know, from the player's perspective, he's uh, trying to do what he thinks uh, he needs to do to make an impression on his organization. No, uh, no disrespect uh, toward him from me uh, you know Mark's comments after uh, you know again I just think that there's sort of a heightened sensitivity uh, based on uh, on who it was on our team uh, that got hit but uh, mm-hmm. you know I don't have any you know any other strong feelings uh, uh, in relation to that incident other than that. Ivan Barbashev, uh, first of all, great pass uh, to Petrangelo yesterday, leading to the first goal in the cue the comeback uh, against the Avalanche. Um, you know, safe to say the the best trade deadline acquisition uh, that anybody made last season um, helped you win the the Stanley Cup. Just a just a quick thought or two on on Ivan Barbashev. It might not be the the biggest household name. I mean, there's a lot of Eichels and Stones and Petrangelos on your team, but. Uh, just a thought for those that may not be familiar with Ivan Barbashev, what exactly he brings to your squad? Well, we had really uh, followed Ivan uh, last year. He was on an expiring contract, so those are players that you uh, like to pay attention to. I, I believe our pro staff, I said it at the time, I think they had you know 55 or 60 uh, in-person viewings uh, of the player, uh, you know, our entire staff. So we sure uh, we sure had a good handle on uh, what we thought he could do and why we were so interested in Ivan Barbashev is he was different than what we had and we thought he would be a real uh, complimentary uh, piece to our forward group. We didn't envision uh, even where he would play. Uh, we thought that he uh, would be uh, you know have great utility kind of up and down a lineup. Uh, it ended up that he uh, fit in with uh, with Eichel and Marsha so on what became. Uh, a real good line for us, and um, when it came, you know, his contract expired, and you know we're looking at uh, you know him being a 28-year-old player in the prime of his career, uh, and again, you know, just the style of game that he plays and what you need to be successful at playoff time. He'd shown us; he uh, was right in front of our eyes in terms of the contribution uh, that he made. So we uh, we really felt, uh, if at all possible, we needed to try to retain him, which is why. Uh, you know, we did. Uh, we made the decisions that we made in uh, in relation to him still being a uh, part of our organization. The trade itself is, you know, probably along the lines of some of the trades that uh, that Tampa have made when uh, you know they bring in a, a you know Coleman, a Goodrow last year, as you know, those uh, types of players. You know, you know our team had uh, we felt you know pretty good uh, high end forwards in terms of how we wanted our roster to be composed and. We needed something like uh, like uh, the skill set that uh, that Barbashev has. That's uh, that's the motivation behind the deal. 
Um, Kelly, last one uh, for you. I, I know you're busy and always appreciate your time. Um, players on expiring deals, uh, Marcia So, uh, Chandler Stevenson, uh, Carrier, like Alec Martinez, these types of players. Are there any updates with any, uh, any extensions or any conversations with these players and their, their representation? Yeah, and then as I mentioned earlier in the call last uh, this past off season, we're fortunate everyone is uh, under contract. We had Barbashev and of course uh, Aiden Hill that we uh, retained as our own free agents. This coming off season, we're going to have uh, more work to do, and those are things that we'll uh, work away at. We don't uh, uh, make a habit of sharing uh, where we're at uh, with discussions with uh, agents with respect to, to players, but those are. Uh, you know, the, the players you mentioned are really important players uh, to our organization that have been a big, big part of things here. So uh, that's uh, work that we'll uh, try to take care of as we go. Good time for the cap to be going up. Good time for the uh, for the cap to be going up. Kelly, uh, again, belated congratulations. Uh, listen, you went at once. They'll ask you to do it again. Best of luck repeating as Stanley Cup champions. Thanks, as always, for stopping by. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Kelly McCrimmon is the general manager of the Vegas Golden Knights, uh, defending Stanley Cup champions. And as I mentioned, a couple of deals um, on the horizon for the uh, for the Vegas Golden Knights. I mean, key pieces here. I mean, Jonathan Marcheseau, when you talk about foundation day one players, uh, Chandler Stevenson, who is one of the who has one of the biggest value contracts uh, in the entire NHL, what he's meant uh, to this organization. And that's just a couple uh, of, of uh, bits of business that Vegas has on the horizon, but also um, winning another Stanley Cup would be another one of those. Um, got a couple of moments here to sort of wrap up the program, and thanks you for uh, thank you for joining us here on uh, the Maiden Voyage. It's radio only today. We are back on Tuesday. TV picks us up as well, so I've got to drag a razor across my face and a comb through my hair, and maybe put on some Mac Thirty so I can look presentable to uh, to everybody here. Um, so thanks so much for uh, for joining me here today. A couple of things as we uh, we wrap up. A couple of games uh, to draw your attention to coming up. Uh, I know it's preseason action, and that might not be everybody's cup of tea, but the thing about the preseason right now, and it's the final couple of games, last look at a couple of players, and you know we'll see where they end up. Like I can't watch. Like I'll be perfectly blunt with you. I have a really hard time watching preseason games in that first week. I don't want to say that the games are unwatchable, but they're basically unwatchable. <laughs> like they are basically, I don't know. They kind of feel like bad AHL games to me. But then you start to get into what we just saw this week, and now heading into the final weekend, and the real thing is coming up next week, and we're starting to see decent games with a lot of familiar players. That Vegas Colorado game last night was good. There was a Washington Boston game earlier on this week that was real good as well. Um, coming up tonight, uh, a couple of games on Sportsnet to draw your attention to. Uh, the Buffalo Sabres, and man, are there expectations for the Sabres uh, this season. They'll face off against the Pittsburgh Penguins. And speaking of expectations, I don't know that there's a team in the NHL that turned their team over more than the Pittsburgh Penguins at every single position. Uh, Kyle Dubas getting to work, new general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins. The big core is still there, certainly complemented now by Eric Carlson, but there are plenty more pieces um, that have joined the Pittsburgh Penguins. Kelly McCrimmon just talked about Riley Smith joining the organization. Uh, that's a new face there. Lars Eller, Nola Chari, Matt Nieto. They pick up Jansen Harkins on waivers. 
Uh, Alec Nedeljkovic will back up Tristan Jari, Ryan Graves on the back end as well. So this is a new-look Pittsburgh Penguins team. If you haven't had a chance to see the Penguins yet, tonight they're in action on Sportsnet starting at 7 o'clock Eastern and then late game, 10 o'clock Eastern. Vancouver Canucks facing off against the Calgary Flames. And we're getting into it. Then we got the Saturday sked. And then we're getting into it next week, Tuesday, with three big games. Tampa-Nashville, Vegas-Seattle, and Crosby versus Bedard. Pittsburgh Penguins and the Chicago Blackhawks. Thanks so much for joining me today in the maiden voyage here. Uh, Lance, great job as always. Thank you so much. Lance Kennedy, our board op. David Kessis is our producer. Thanks so much for stopping by today. We are back, not Thanksgiving Monday, but Tuesday. Full radio network, full television as well. I'll clean up the act. Don't worry. Merrick Show continues next week. Thanks for joining me. Have a great weekend.